So to a certain degree over the last five lessons, um, I've tried to go somewhat verse by verse to describe the imagery uh, within Zephaniah 1 and 2. Um, and I'm still sort of finding my footing on how to prepare a verbal lesson and then deliver a verbal lesson when I haven't necessarily spelled out every word. Um, so I'm going to do chapter 3 a little bit differently than chapters 1 and 2. But let me read chapter 3 first. Um, just by way of review, remember chapter 1 uh, pronounces judgment upon Jerusalem. Uh, then Zephaniah goes through each of the respective covenants all the way to the Mosaic covenant uh, and uh, pronounces covenant judgments upon uh, God's people. Chapter 2, uh, there's a call to repentance that you may be found uh, hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Uh, at the end of chapter 2, verse 3, and then the rest of chapter 2 is all about judgment upon the nations. And Zephaniah goes around the globe and pronounces judgment upon the nations. And then we come to chapter 3, and while Jerusalem is not called out, just as far as the structure of chapter 3, the first eight verses of chapter 3 are another pronouncement of judgment upon Jerusalem. In particular, we know it's Jerusalem because of verse 5, the Lord is righteous in her midst. The only city where uh, God dwelt with his people was Jerusalem. This is the precious Jerusalem in verses 1 through 8. So let me read that. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted, to the oppressing city. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave not a bone till morning. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their fortresses are devastated, and I have made their streets desolate with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitant. I, I said, surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction so that her dwelling would not be cut off, despite everything for which I punished her. But they rose early and corrupted all their deeds." Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. In that day you shall not be shamed for all your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride and shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. 
I will leave in your midst a meek, humble, a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cut out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly, who are among you, to whom its reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time I will deal with all those who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. At that time, I will bring you back, even at the time I gather you. I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. So the first thing that I want us to notice today in Zephaniah chapter 3 is that Yahweh redeems his people out of judgment. And one of the things that we've been considering is the relationship between judgment and redemption over the last several weeks. Uh, We often think of the gospel in terms of what Jesus did on the cross for our sin, uh, but there is a part of that. Uh, that sometimes uh, can be ignored. The judgment that Christ took on in going to the cross for our sin. Um, Yes, He died for our sins, but Christ went through the judgment that we all deserve for our sins. But this was promised since the very beginning. Judgment, uh, the curse that God placed on Adam and Eve in the garden... uh, uh, was sort of the framework for the gospel first being preached in Genesis 3.15. And it is, not, um, it is not ironic that this was also predicted uh, in Genesis 15 uh, with uh, the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 15, right after God cuts a covenant with Abraham, um, which, which we've already talked about several times over the last few weeks, uh, this is Genesis fifteen fourteen, And also the nation whom they serve, speaking of Egypt, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So this idea of uh, coming out with great possessions, of redemption, uh, coming out of judgment, uh, is all over Scripture. Um, Calvin says in relation to Genesis fifteen fourteen, the sons of Abram could not otherwise be saved than by the destruction of others. And think for a moment about Pharaoh, the great king who's bearing the judgment of God, whose first son died. Uh, all of that is a picture of the work of God in salvation or in redemption of his people. The people of God are called out of slavery and then go immediately to the mountain of the Lord. And that is a picture of what Zephaniah is talking about here today in chapter 3. 
So judgment on Jerusalem is the focus of the first eight verses. Uh, And I'm going to talk more about verses two and three because they sort of set the stage for the rest of the chapter. But in verse one, a prophetic woe is pronounced upon the people. This is the city and they are called rebellious, polluted, oppressing. And all of these indicate a people that are in covenant with God. These are God's people, and this is personal. They have rebelled against Him. They're polluted or they are unclean, and they are an oppressing city. And by the way, this is the verse that was preached, uh, I heard preached uh, about a year ago that started my study into Zephaniah. Um, and the oppressing city was interpreted as a Uh, A sort of modern woke oppression, oppression over race or oppression over status or oppression over climate. Uh, And that is not what this means. This is God's people uh, who were called by his name. And uh, this the oppression that is looked at here is in direct relation to the command of God in Exodus 22 that you shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So uh, the, the judgment that Egypt represents in Scripture is called to mind multiple times throughout this chapter. But this is the inheritance of Judah. Uh, these are God's people, and this is, this is God calling out His people for, uh, in their shame, in their sin. They've rebelled against their God and they've worshipped other gods. They've played the harlot under every green tree and under and upon every high hill. Jerusalem itself has been found to be unclean and polluted. Not even the kings of the earth or the inhabitants of the land would touch their garments in Lamentations 4. The picture in Lamentations of this very uh, Jerusalem is of a people wandering blindly in the, in the streets and defiled with blood. Remember, which makes you unclean. And the other nations shouted at Israel, unclean, unclean, to the leprous inhabitants of the holy city of God. And that is the picture here in Zephaniah 3. So Israel was specifically commanded by God not to oppress uh, not to not to oppress strangers. As we move into verse two, um, she has not obeyed his voice. This is a picture of sin, of disobedience of God. She has not received correction. She has not repented. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not believed. She has not drawn near to her God. And the idea of drawing near is used. 158 times in the Old Testament to refer specifically to worship. Uh, And uh, the charge against Jerusalem is for her sin, her lack of repentance, her unbelief, and now she has not uh, come near to God, drawn near to God in worship. This is a people that had heard the very voice of God. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 4. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and live? Or did God ever try to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of another nation? 
by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by the mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great terrors according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There is none besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might instruct you on earth. He showed you his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he brought you out of Egypt with his presence and with his mighty power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in and to give you their land as an inheritance, as it it is this day. Therefore, know this day and consider in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven, and on the earth beneath there is no other. This is a people that heard the very voice of God and have rejected that voice. Robertson says, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong place in my notes. The greatest indictment here is the sin of unbelief. Because without faith, it is impossible to believe God. Your works mean nothing. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and rewards those that seek Him. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. God gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Our Savior says, Therefore, whoever confesses Me before men, I will also confess before My Father who is in heaven. The Ethiopian eunuch, reading the prophet Isaiah, had no understanding of Christ when Philip preached Christ to him. And he confesses, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It is unbelief that comes into view here and is carried throughout the rest of the chapter of Zephaniah. But in addition to unbelief, the fear of God. This was a people that had heard God's voice and yet did not fear Him. This was a God that was in their midst. Look at verse 5. The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do do no unrighteousness every morning. Or morning by morning, He brings His justice to light. He never fails. So fear God now while there is still time that you may be hidden in the day of God's anger. Because the day is surely coming, Christ says, like a thief in the night. The law was to be read every seven years to God's people, commanded in Deuteronomy 31. And the purpose, actually, let's go read that. I realize we keep going back to Deuteronomy, but Deuteronomy is very significant to Zephaniah. Deuteronomy 31, verse 10. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear... 
before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. You shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. So part of this indictment about unbelief is their lack of fear of the Lord. Look at chapter th- Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 7. I said, surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction so that her dwelling would not be cut off, despite everything for which I punished her. But they rose early, corrupt in all their deeds. So this is a people that does not fear God. Robertson says, Do not entertain any doubts when you observe the persistent refusal to fear Yahweh, even on the part of those who have Yahweh dwelling in their midst. Trust in the fact that the day is near. He never does wrong. He never shall fear, fail. He never shall fail. His justice cannot be questioned. Morning by morning it comes to light. On the rightly appointed day, he shall come to testify even against those who bear his name. Robertson also says um, that God's jealousy consumes, but it also redeems. And that's such a succinct way to view what is going on here in Zephaniah chapter 3, is that God is accomplishing the redemption of His people. We're seeing, uh, we're seeing the price of our redemption, the price of salvation, the price that Christ paid on the cross. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, reading verse 8. Until the day I rise up for plunder, my determination is to gather the nations to to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. This is the day of the Lord. This is the day when Christ comes triumphantly uh, the second time. Consider now for a moment the love of God on display in Zephaniah. In uh, what we begin to see immediately upon Christ's coming and the whole earth being devoured with the fire of his jealousy, as we see in the latter half of chapter 3, uh, hope consummated, the hope of redemption consummated in Christ's work. Uh, in verse 9, Uh, we see sort of an unwinding of Babel, uh, where uh, the people of God had been scattered across the entire earth. Uh, We see that now uh, they will be restored to a people of a pure language that they may call upon the name of the Lord to serve Him with one accord. So in a sense... Babel is reversed. In chapter 1, we saw creation reversed in judgment, but now we're seeing Babel, the consequences of Babel unwound. And that this pure tongue uh, is given to God's people. This new people, Gentile and Jew, in verse 10, from the rivers, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, 
my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, which were Jews, shall bring my offering. This is Jew and Gentile together calling upon the name of the Lord in worship. And it's interesting to think, you remember chapter 2, verse 12, there is one verse referencing Ethiopians uh, in judgment. Ethiopia, or Cush, specifically in judgment, which was unusual. We talked about this last time. This was unusual because uh, Egypt would have been the clear choice here. Rivals, they had imprisoned the Jews for 400 and something years. Uh, Egypt would have been the clear choice for selecting uh, a nation to judge in chapter 2. And yet, relatively unknown Cush, way out in the distance beyond Egypt, is, pick here, is picked here. And they're brought up again uh, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia in verse 10. Um, it is interesting to note that one of the very first converts outside of God's people uh, in Acts was the Ethiopian eunuch. And it is Philip that, that miraculously is brought to this Ethiopian eunuch who did not know about Christ. And he's converted on the spot and baptized on the spot. And uh, that is foreseen. These, these distant people, this is you and me. You and I are the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, in a sense. These distant people are called by God's name. Here in chapter 3, verse 10, Robertson says, God's ancient people of Israel joined with converts from the world's distant climates. They call on the name of the Lord with lips purified by the Holy Spirit. This community of the new covenant, heir to all the blessings prefigured in the old, live in safety with no one to terrify them. Let's look at verse 15. This is the specific promise of God. Remember, he is uh, one of the indictments against Jerusalem was that they did not fear him. And now he resolves that in chapter 3, verse 15. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. That see disaster is also interpreted, you shall fear evil no more. God is calling his people to fear him, but also saying, no one will make you fear them because we shall fear God. I'll keep reading to verse 16. In that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion. Let not your hands be weak. Remember that as Christ enters this city, Jerusalem, on the donkey, he says, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. I learned recently that the picture of the donkey uh, is, uh, is significant because in Hittite culture, um, uh, they would cut a covenant uh, typically utilizing a donkey in order to as the animal that they would cut. And so the donkey for Jews at this point in time would hold that significance. Remember, it was a Hittite's field that Abraham was buried in and Jacob was buried in. And remember that there are donkeys mentioned uh, in uh, uh, Genesis 49 in relation to the line of Judah. Uh, and it is on a donkey that Christ rides into 
Jerusalem saying, fear not, daughter of Zion. It's as if Christ is saying the covenant has been cut and the sacrifice has been prepared and he presents himself to God's people, which is a beautiful picture. In verse 17, which I said in the very first week uh, has been called the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Um, In verse 17, we see God's love. Remember, we're considering God's love on display. uh, And this is perhaps the most beautiful picture um, of God's love. But notice that this is not a sentimental love. Uh, But this is the love of a mighty hero. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The fact that a holy God should experience ecstasy over any sinner is incomprehensible. Let's look at Isaiah 65. We'll read verse, verses 17 through 19. Specifically, verse 19, but I want to start with 17 because this relates to something we're going to deal with in a minute. Isaiah 65, verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not remember or come to mind shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Luke 15 says that there is, that there is joy in the presence of angels over one sinner who repents. This joy in the presence of those angels, Zephaniah is saying, is the very singing of God over his people. He will rejoice over you with singing. The fierce anger and fire of his jealousy in chapter 3, verse 8, is turned into joy and song in chapter 3, verse 17. You and I are called in chapter 3, Israel, Zion, Jerusalem. The elect of God are loved because He loved them. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the people on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because He would keep the oath with which He swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. This is God speaking to us, the Israel of Christ. Zephaniah's name means concealed or kept safe by Jehovah. And the idea here is that there is a special treasure and it is concealed. It's kept away. It's kept safe. You and I are that special treasure that are kept safe. The church is the special treasure 
you remember that when Israel came out of Egypt, I'm going back to the, what we talked about at the very beginning, Genesis 15:14. When Israel came out of Egypt, uh, the Egyptians gave them their gold earrings and their jewelry, and they came out of Egypt with all of these treasures. And one might think, at first blush, it looks as if that is the treasure that God was promising in Genesis 15, promising to Abraham. Let me go back and read that verse. And also, the nation whom they will serve, I will judge, speaking of Egypt. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Well, the people of God did come out with great possessions. They came out with silver and gold. And immediately, at the base of the mountain, they turned all of those possessions into an idol which they worshipped. But we know now from the perspective of the new covenant that the great treasure that came out of judgment was not the gold and silver that was turned into an idol, but it was in fact the church, the true people of God, the remnant who came out of that judgment and who God keeps safe until the last day. Just as Yahweh promises to quiet us with His love, remember Christ's silence in the midst of of his trial and crucifixion. Spurgeon says, For Christ's silence was rooted in no other soil than in the fertile depths of the love of God for sinners. There's probably a whole Sunday school lesson on that, and I'm done with that thought for now. (laughs) Uh, It is God who works salvation. It's my third point. It's God's salvation. Why was it an Ethiopian eunuch? Why not just an Ethiopian? Uh, God uses the picture of man's own inability to create for himself an heir. Uh, Even in Abram. Abram and Sarah could not create offspring. And yet God gives them offspring because it is God's special provision. Uh, Hannah. Mary herself was dead. Having been a virgin, she could not bear a child, and yet she was given a child. Uh, All of these are pictures of uh, God providing for redemption. This eunuch, unable to bear children, uh, is a beautiful picture of the work of God in salvation. Which is perhaps why Ethiopia is addressed in Zephaniah. Maybe Zephaniah never knew that there would be an Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. Um, In verses 18 through 20 here, we see that there's a shift to the first person. Um, In in verse 17, uh, everything is the Lord your God, the Mighty One. He will do this. He, He will quiet you. He will rejoice over you with singing. And then all of a sudden it shifts, it shifts to first person. This is not the first time we've had first person. There's first person in chapter 3, verse 6 and 7 um, and 8. Uh, but we see this first person shift um, here. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you to whom its reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. At that time, I will bring you back 
at that time, I will gather you. I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives from before your eyes. For the elect of God, the judgment spread throughout the book sees a theological reversal in this second half of Zephaniah 3. The the righteous God in chapter 3, verse 5, makes his people do no unrighteousness in chapter 3, verse 13. The leaders of the people are punished in chapter 1, verse 8 of Zephaniah. But Yahweh will be their king in chapter 3, verse 15. The people are told to gather themselves for destruction in chapter 2, verse 1. Remember, it's kindling. They're going to be burned in chapter 2, verse 1. And Yahweh gathers His people in chapter 3, verses 18, 19, and 20. It's Yahweh who does the work. The desolate places are inhabited by unclean animals in chapter 2, verse 14. But they will become green pastures of peace and paradise restored in chapter 3, verse 13. The stumbling blocks are condemned in chapter 1, verse 3. But it is Christ who's called the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense, the stone that the builders rejected, and gloriously the chief cornerstone that is ultimately condemned in the end. Yahweh commands silence of the covenantally unfaithful in chapter 1, verse 7. But He quiets those that are His with His love in chapter 3, verse 17. The wailing and the sound of the mournful cry from Jerusalem's fish gate in chapter 1, verse 10 turns into the song of the daughter of Zion and even the rejoicing of the great covenant-keeping Lord in song over His people in chapter 3, verse 17. And there's more. We're honestly just scratching the surface. Uh, My fourth and last point is that on the last day, there will be restitution to be enjoyed to the fullest. God remembers His covenant with David. Uh, In chapter 1, we went through all of the various covenants. Uh, all the way up through Moses. Um, But the Davidic covenant has kind of been looming out there. We've talked about it uh, mostly in relation to chapter 3. But you'll remember in 2 Samuel 7, uh, there are two primary promises related to David, that there would be a Messiah of the Davidic line, a king that would come. And the second promise was in relation to Jerusalem. And here we are condemning Jerusalem. Uh, So how is it that the Davidic covenant is fulfilled? Remember, we said that chapter 3, verse verse 15, the the King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. So there's the promise of the King, uh, that the Lord will be the King of Israel. Um, But how is it that the land is redeemed? The land has continued to be a focus uh, even up until chapter 3, verse 13. Uh, for they shall feed their flocks and, and lie down. This picture of restored paradise or Eden, and no one shall make them afraid. Some of Zephaniah's prophecy finds fulfillment in uh, the return of the captives, the literal return of the captives back into the promised land. Uh, 
after the the Babylonian invasion 100 or 120 years later. Um, but only some of that fulfillment. The ultimate cosmic fulfillment envisioned by Zephaniah awaits the last day when the captives will be returned to the land on a scale unimaginable. This unclean city of Jerusalem that worshiped Baal in chapter 1, verse 4, and stars in chapter 1, verse 5, and turned back from following the Lord in chapter 1, verse 6, that did not seek the Lord in chapter 1, verse 6 also, whose leaders were punished in chapter 1, verse 9, who were spiritually indifferent in chapter 1, verse 12, who lose the promised land in verse 13, whose land is devoured by the fire of his jealousy in verse 18, who is a rebellious, polluted, and oppressing people in chapter 3, verse 1, and sinful, unrepentant, believing people in chapter 3, verse 2. What becomes of this great city where a holy God would dwell in the midst of His people? So turn with me now to Revelation 19. We do not have time for me to read this huge and beautiful section, Um, so I'm going to skip around a little bit. Revelation 19, it's at the very end. Nineteen verse one. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, "Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power." Belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever, and the twenty-four elders, actually I'm going to skip that part, let's go to verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. Skipping to verse 11 of chapter 19. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, no longer a donkey, I suppose, And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses." Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains. Remember Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7, about the covenantal feast where the flesh was eaten, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave 
both small and great. And then at the very end of chapter 19, verse 21, and all the birds were were filled with their flesh. Chapter 21, verse 1, And now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Skipping to verse 2, The holy city, the the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 21 verse 4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Verse 22, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. So we see here this... New Covenant, New Testament perspective of what Zephaniah is describing in chapter 3. That this is the day of the Lord come in glory. And this is God's salvation of His people. This is the final fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. That there would be a Davidic king, King Christ, to rule over God's people. And that the New Jerusalem... Uh, would be promised in which he would rule. So we see here uh, God providing salvation for his people in the midst of this judgment. This is the judgment, uh, this is the wrath that Christ took upon himself at the cross, drinking the full cup of God's wrath for our salvation. So we're out of time.